defined as an enthusiastic admirer. See, fans want a relationship with Jesus. They just want it on their terms. The deal is, though, Jesus was never really interested in fans. He wanted followers. All too easily, a church can become a stadium full of fans instead of a community of completely committed followers. It's not enough to just say, I'm all for Jesus. He's called us to something much deeper than that. Are you a fan or a follower of Jesus? Well, this morning we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. And up until this point, we've seen Jesus' ministry picking up steam. We've seen momentum happening in Jesus's ministry. And and as we study through the book of Mark, you're going to see three different people, groups of people that are constantly surrounding Jesus. And those three groups of people are his foes, his enemies, his fans, which is often described as the crowd uh, in throughout Mark's gospel. And the third group are his followers, his disciples, those that, that are committed to him, that are following him. And Over the last several weeks, we've been looking more at his enemies, more at his foes. And uh, we've talked about and looked at the fact that the religious leaders hated Jesus. And they, they despised him. Why? Because he didn't play by the rules. He didn't follow along with their rituals. And they despised him and they hated him. And he also exposed their hypocrisy. So, last week we saw in... Mark chapter 3, verse 6, we ended on this, the fact that that the Pharisees and the Herodians had conspired together in this unholy union to get rid of Jesus, to to exterminate Jesus. And so we ended last week with with that scene. And so today we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 3, verse 7. And what we're going to see today is we're going to look at the other two groups. We've been looking at the foes. We've been looking at Jesus' enemies. And today we're going to look at his fans and his followers. Because the book of Mark is really a book about discipleship. If you remember, Mark is writing this book to Christians that are living in Rome that are under immense persecution. They are being being impaled and and, uh, murdered and martyred for for their faith. They're being arrested. They're being imprisoned. And Mark is writing this gospel to these folks, challenging them, urging them, exhorting them to become followers, faithful followers, fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to look at these two other groups, the fans and the followers. And we're going to discover some incredible things about both of those groups and see the difference between Jesus's fans and Jesus's followers. So if you're following along with me in Mark uh, chapter three, beginning in verse seven, and it says this, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And it says that in a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So listen, despite the threats of the religious leaders, there's this great crowd that continues to follow Jesus. Despite the fact that the religious leaders despise him, this crowd continues to grow to the point where Mark is describing this crowd today as great. It is a great crowd. It is a huge crowd of people that have surrounded Jesus. And Mark, if you follow along in his gospel, as we're going to over over, over the course of our series in this book, you're going to see Mark continually reference the crowd. In fact, between now and chapter 10 of this book, we're going to see Mark mention the crowd 40 times, which is a lot. He's pointing out the fact that Jesus is constantly surrounded by the crowd. These fans of Jesus that want to be with him, that want to be near him, that want to to hear him teach, that want to be healed by him, they're constantly surrounding Jesus, this group called the crowd. 
And by this point, this crowd has moved beyond Capernaum. You know, in the first two chapters of, of Mark, the, the, what we hear of the crowd is this group that is surrounding Capernaum. And, and it's when Jesus heals in the synagogue, and then he goes over to Peter's house, heals Peter's mother-in-law, and the crowd shows up there. But now the crowd has grown. Now the crowd is huge. Now the crowd has expanded beyond Capernaum. It's not just in Galilee anymore. In fact, all of Judea is coming. In fact, what, what Mark describes in those locations in verse 8 and, and 7 and 8 is that from the north, south, east, and west, people are coming from hundreds of miles away simply to be near Jesus. And what's interesting about this group now, it is no longer just a group of Jews. This is actually a group of Jews and Gentiles that have gathered together to form this crowd. So Jesus' ministry is expanding. His popularity is growing. In fact, Isaiah, when we read this account by Mark, we're reminded of what Isaiah said about the Messiah. And here's what he said in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. He says this, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. And listen to this. I will make you, this is talking about the Messiah, I will make you as a light for the nations. Some of your translations say the light for the Gentiles. That my salvation may do what? Reach the ends of the earth. Does that remind you of what Jesus said in his great commission? That we are to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so what, we're, what we should be reminded of in this text is Mark is referencing the fact that Jesus is the light for the Gentiles. And what Mark is saying is like, listen guys, this is happening now. Like right now is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the light of the Gentiles. Jesus has come to gather people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation to follow him. This ethnic mix represents the kingdom of God. In Revelation where it says that from every nation, every tribe, every tongue will be gathered in heaven, as God's kingdom. And so when we read this text and we see these people coming from the north, south, east, and west, we should be reminded that this is a fulfillment of what Isaiah 49 was talking about. Now, I don't know about you, but I like crowds. Anybody like crowds? Like, I love crowds. I mean, as a pastor, you're supposed to love crowds, right? Because the more people that show up means the better we're doing. Like the more students we have, the more people we have, it means we're doing better, right? Here's the problem. What Mark shows us is that when he references the crowds, it doesn't always mean success for Jesus' ministry. The crowds don't always equate to success in the life of Jesus. In fact, what we're going to discover is that crowds... Well, yes, they provide audience for Jesus' teaching. And yes, crowds are objects of Jesus' compassion. What we're going to discover today is that crowds often obstruct Jesus from his mission. Crowds often get in the way of other people coming to Jesus. If you remember uh, back in chapter 2, uh, when Jesus, when they lower the paralytic down through the roof, why couldn't they get to Jesus? Because the crowds, the crowds were getting in the way. They were obstructing people from coming to Jesus. Here's what we find out about crowds. They're often passive when it comes to Jesus. Mark never once in those 40 times that he mentions crowds, not once does he say that the crowd repented and believed. Not once in those 40 times does he say that the crowd truly believed in Jesus. Now they gathered around him. They came around him. They wanted to be near him, but they never repented, never believed. And if you remember back in Mark chapter 1, Jesus said, my purpose, I have come to preach repentance. And he says, repent and believe. And yet the crowds never do that. Instead, 
what we would describe the crowds, the best way to describe the crowds would be more like fans of Jesus. They were fans, but they weren't committed followers. Listen to what it says in verse 9. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Let's stop right there. I want you to picture a celebrity. Because by this point, Jesus has created some celebrity around there. He was, he was the first celebrity pastor. I mean, he was, people were wanting to be around him. And unlike the rest of the celebrity pastors, Jesus didn't focus on the crowd. He focused on his disciples. We'll get to that later. But what, what we see here is that this crowd is circling around him. So I want you to think about paparazzi. I want you to think about somebody famous. And you have this massive crowd that is just creeping in on them, pressing in on them, uh, you know, to the point where they're going to crush him. And so what Jesus tells his disciples, like, guys, listen, get the boat ready. We might have to have a fast escape. We might have to get out of here really quick. So get the boat ready. So, you know, Peter's out there on the boat. He's just waiting. All right, Jesus got a, my boat and I got a sword, you know, because Peter's always willing to chop somebody's ears off. I mean, he's just out there. He's ready to go. Like, what are we doing, Jesus? Let's go. And that's what's happening. And so Jesus is saying, get the boat ready because this crowd may crush me for, verse 10, for he had healed many of them so that all who had diseases pressed around him just to touch him. So think about this. This crowd is getting closer and closer and closer and tighter and tighter and tighter to Jesus. Just so if I could just touch him, I'll be healed. If I could just get near him. So just imagine this massive crowd. Probably, many people estimated this was thousands of people just descending upon Jesus, just crushing in on Jesus. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So picture this huge crowd pressing in on Jesus. Pressing in on him so much so that these disciples get the boat ready. But here's the thing I want you to notice. That the crowd was only interested in what they could get from Jesus. That's the only reason they were there. They weren't there to be with Jesus. They were just there to get from Jesus. And the crowd, all they wanted was something from Jesus. They had very little interest in Jesus himself, but they were very interested in his miracles. That's really all they wanted from him. That's why these crowds are simply fans. But here's the problem with fans. They're fickle. Fans are fair-weathered, aren't they? You know, I'll give you an example. So um, once a year, I cheer for Clemson football. Once a year. And I cheer for them. Why? Because they play Georgia Tech. But I'm a fickle fan. I'm fair I just want one game. That's it. But after that one game, come September 4th of 2021... When we face them in Charlotte, they're going to not, I'm not going to be a fan. They're going to be my foe, right? I want you to picture that. That's what's happening with, these, with this crowd. Because think about this. The crowd is only there to get from Jesus. They only want the benefits of Jesus. In fact, this same crowd, a few years later, is going to go from crushing him just to be near him to yelling, crucify him. That's what crowds do. That's the way crowds behave. They're fickle, and they're going to yell, crucify him. In fact, prior to this pandemic, Pastor Kyle Eidelman wrote these shocking words, and I want you to just listen to what he wrote. It may seem, it may seem that there are many followers of Jesus, but if they were honestly to define the relationship they have with him, I am not sure it would be accurate to describe them as followers. Listen to what he says. It seems to me that it is more suitable, there is a more suitable word to describe them. They are not followers, they are fans. He goes on to say, My concern is that many of our churches in America have gone from being sanctuaries to becoming stadiums. And every week, fans come 
that have no interest in truly following Jesus. They come to cheer for Him. And he goes on to say, the biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. Closes out this section in his book and says this, they want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. Pretty stark words, aren't they? That, 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 that so many people have filled our churches and they're simply fans. They're not truly followers. In fact, this past week, we hit the one-year mark of this pandemic, which means that for many people, it has been one year since people who were faithful church attenders, one year since they stepped foot in a church. One year since they've been in a building gathered with God's people. And I don't know what you're thinking. Eric, we've been online. And yes, there have been. In fact, there are folks here today that have been online. And we're grateful to have you back with us. It's awesome. And that's not the people I'm talking about. Because I know oftentimes when you're thinking, listen, we've been online. We've been watching online. Yes. And there are many of you right now that are watching online. I don't want you. This, I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking to the people that have been online. Who I'm talking to is that this is the reality. Back, I just read a study in July 2020. The study went back this past this entire year. In July 2020, one third of all professing Christians had stopped attending church in person, in person and watching church online. A third of Christians, professing Christians, people that a year earlier had been actively involved in their local church, a third of them are no, lo no longer no to be found anywhere. They're not online. They're not in buildings. They're not gathering with any other Christians in that, in that regard. I mean, that's, some, that's some, uh, a stark reality, isn't it? And again, this isn't for the people that are watching us online. It's for the people that we never see anymore. It's, it's, the, it's the fans of Jesus that, that have marked so many of our churches. Why? Because I think uh, Pastor Eidelman's words were in some way prophetic and true. And today, we've seen most churches have, re, have, have reopened. And here's what this study has found. It found that the majority of churches that have reopened are seeing 30 to 50% decrease in attendance both online and in person from, last, from, the, from 2019 and early 2020. And those same churches have seen 30 to 50% decline in giving. Those same churches, that say, they said that in, in, if, if things don't turn around for some churches, one out of five churches may close their doors in the next 18 months. Why? I think part of it is that we've had a lot of fans that called themselves followers, that filled our churches when it was convenient, that watched online when it was convenient, that gave, that served when it was convenient. And what we're, and, and again, look, I, I don't think that church attendance and giving are the only two factors, but I do think they do point to this, this, um, this problem within the local church where a lot of people claim to be followers and yet they're truly, simply Fans. So before, again, before you email and say, well, what about the vulnerable? What about those that are waiting on a vaccine? What about those that are joining online? Again, that is not who I'm talking about. So I don't want any, this is not about guilt. This is just about the reality of where we sit, where many people who have claimed to be followers of Jesus have simply, are, are more fans than Jesus. But I do think that the truth of the matter is that you and I, those that are online and those that are gathered in this room, have to ask ourselves, Every single one of us have to ask ourselves, am I a fan of Jesus or am, a follower, or am I a follower of Jesus? Am I a fan that I love Jesus when he's on my agenda? I love Jesus when he's making my life great. I love to follow Jesus when it's convenient. I love to follow Jesus when he does what I want him to do. Or am I a follower? 
power that I just simply love Jesus. My life is all about Jesus. I am all about being obedient to Jesus. I simply just want to be with Jesus. And what we're going to see for the remainder of our time is what it looks like for you and I to move from being fans to followers. And what Jesus is going to show us in these next texts is this process that he takes us through as we become and move from fans to followers. Listen to what he says in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now listen to what, listen to what is happening. I love this text. Jesus deliberately calls and chooses who he wants to come to him. He chooses who he chooses, and he chooses them, and look how quickly they respond. It says he chose them, and they came. He called, and they came. That's what following looks like. Following doesn't look like Jesus calling, and we say, eh, maybe. No, Jesus called, and they came. Immediately, they went and followed him. But I love the fact that, and Paul makes it clear, that Jesus doesn't call them because they have it all together. And we're going to see that in a few moments. Jesus doesn't call them because they have their own, within their own merit. Jesus doesn't call them because they deserved it. That's not why Jesus called them. Jesus called them, get this church, he called them because he wanted them. He called them because he desired to be with them. He chose them simply because he chose them. It was all an act of grace. And listen, God doesn't choose you because you've got it all together. God doesn't choose you because you do the right things. God doesn't choose you because you're a religious person. He doesn't choose you because you're good. Because the fact of the matter is that none of you are good. I'm not good. None of us are. None of us deserve it. He chooses us because He desires us. He chooses us because He loves us. Listen, church, you are loved by Jesus. And that is the only reason He chooses you. It is simply because of His grace. We have to understand this. Or we will continue to be fans and not followers of Jesus. And so Jesus chooses them merely out of his grace. And we need to be reminded that it is Jesus who chooses us, not we don't choose him. In fact, John wrote it this way in his gospel. He said, no one, which in the Greek means no one, can come to me unless the Father has sent me. Or, or unless the Father sent me, who sent me draws him. Then he, John goes on to say in John 15, 16, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that fruit should abide. Now what we're going to see next is this, this process and, and this, what it looks like when we move from becoming followers are becoming fans to followers of Jesus. And over these next few verses, he's going to show us what it looks like for us to transform from merely fans of Jesus to followers of Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, verse, beginning in verse 14, it says this, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles. Now, I want to stop right there. It says that Jesus appointed 12. That word appointed literally means to make. They weren't chosen because they were apostles. Jesus chose them and then he made them apostles. You got to understand that. Jesus is the one that transformed them. Jesus is the one that made them. Jesus is the one that took their lives, took them, met them right where they were and transformed them and made them into who he wanted them to be. That's what Jesus does. He takes us and he transforms us. He molds us and he shapes us into who he desires us to be. That's exactly what he did with, the, with these disciples. These 12 men, it says he appointed them. He chose them and then he began to transform them. 
We don't come to Christ after we've changed our lives. We come to Christ just as we are, and we allow Christ to transform our lives and to shape our lives and to make us who He designed us to be and who He desires us to be. Listen, church, our confidence, our confidence is not in who we are. Our confidence is in whose we are. That's where our confidence comes from. It's not based on anything you've done. It's based on what Christ has done for you. That's where our confidence comes from. But why, why did Jesus choose 12? Why not 8? Why not 10? 20? Why not choose 100? 1,000? The fact that he chose 12 is incredibly significant. And it is significant in this, that how many of you remember how many tribes of Israel there were? 12. 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus, in this picture of choosing 12, is establishing a new people. He's establishing what is called his church. And so he's choosing these 12, because, because as you know, if you go back and know your Old Testament history, you know that the God's chosen people, Israel, those 12 tribes, they didn't faithfully keep God's commands. They didn't, they didn't faithfully follow God. They didn't fulfill their purpose that God had called them to. They, they failed to live up to God's glory. And so as a result, Jesus had to come to be the new Moses in order to fulfill the law, just as Hebrews teaches us. He came to be the new Abraham to call out a new people, Set apart for himself. And he, and he came to be the new Israel. To live out the purposes of God. And so what we see here is God not abandoning. Uh, he's not abandoning his plan. He's not forsaking his plan. He's fulfilling his plan. All of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to the Messiah. So oftentimes people read this and say, well, God just abandoned his plan. Remember those promises he made to Abraham that he said, yeah, I will make you into a great nation. You will have a great land and you'll be a great people. That's not, God's not abandoning that plan. He's not forsaking that plan. He's fulfilling it. See, all of those promises of Abraham have been pointing to Jesus. All the Old Testament has been pointing to Jesus. And Jesus has come not to forsake the promises of Abraham, but to fulfill them. And how he fulfills them is that he calls to himself both Jews and Gentiles to become a new people. This people that are, that are to be a blessing to the land, a blessing to all nations. That is the church. And so God has called this people, and that's why he chose twelve. If you remember from last week, Jesus said, I am the new wine that goes in new wineskins. I'm not the old wine. Why did he say that? Because Jesus comes to make something new. He comes to bring about something new. And what is this newness that he's bringing about? He's bringing about this new community, this new family called the church. And he appoints the twelve. And he shows us, after he appoints the twelve, how you and I move from being fans to followers. Look what he says. And he appointed the twelve. So he calls them, he makes them. So that. So that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach. In verse 15. And have authority to cast out demons. So what we see in this text. Is three key aspects of how you and I move. From being fans to to followers. And the first one is this that we are called to be with Jesus. We're called to be with him. Being a disciple is being with Jesus. That's what being a disciple is. See, Jesus desires for you and I as his followers to simply spend time with him. He desires for us to be in relationship with Him. He desires for us to come to Him, to be poured into by Him. It, you know, the thing that set Israel apart from all the other nations, the thing that set Israel apart from all other nations was what? That God was with them. That's it. God's presence 
with the nation of Israel is what set them apart from all other people and all other nations. You know what sets you and I apart from the world that we live in? It's not how you and I behave. It's not the rules that we follow. It's the fact that Jesus is with us. It's the fact that his spirit lives inside of us. That's what sets us apart. That's why Jesus said, I've called them to come and be with me. Because the cross is not simply a means for us to get forgiveness and to, and to go to heaven one day when we die. The purpose of the cross is so that right now, God could be with us. Right now, you and I can have a relationship with God. Yes, the benefit is forgiveness. Yes, the benefit is heaven. But the purpose is so right now, we can have fellowship and union and abide in Christ Jesus. That's why He came. And that's what He calls us to. He calls us to be with Him. Because here's what happens. When you and I are with Him, when we spend time with Him, what, we do, what, we begin, what begins to happen is we begin to learn how He loves. We begin to learn and see how He handles people. We begin to discover His principles, His priorities, His purposes. And, and then we're to, we have the ability to follow them. I don't know about you, but when I became a Christian, I didn't get like this rule book and this handbook that says, okay, here's everything you need to do. And some of you are going, well, isn't that the Bible? Partly. But more important than that, the Bible is this letter that God has written to his people. It's a love letter about a relationship with him. Not simply just a list of rules and regulations that we are to follow. It's not just a manual. It is a, it is a relationship building book. It's letters that are written to us so that we can have fellowship with God. Not just so that we can do things for God. And so what we see is when we spend time with Jesus, he changes us. He transforms us. Remember, he appointed the 12. Why did he appoint him? To be with him so that he could transform them, so that he could change them, so that he could take their lives and form them into who he wanted them to be. Because the reality is when you and I spend time with Jesus, we can't be the same. When you truly spend time with Jesus, you cannot remain the same. He will, yes, 100% meet us where we are, but he's never going to leave us there. He's going to take us and he's going to transform us and he's going to change us. I mean, let's go let's see the second thing he does. He sends them to go and proclaim Jesus. And it says, so they might know him, so they might be with him. And then he says he, that he might send them out to preach. Being a disciple means living on mission with Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus actually means to proclaim Jesus, to, to go and make disciples. That's what we're commanded to as his followers. You and I are commanded to go and carry the gospel where we live, work, and play. We are commanded to go and make disciples. And if we're not sharing, we're not following See, oftentimes I think we, we get in these cycles of how Christians interact with those that are far from God. And I think there's really three options for us. The first option is we can isolate ourselves from all unbelievers. We can just remove ourselves. We can spend all of our time with, with Christians. We can make sure that, that we don't do anything to taint ourselves. We can you know, make sure that we, we avoid non-believers as much as possible. We can just isolate ourselves from people that are far from God. But what that does is that creates an us versus them mentality. Have you noticed that in the church? It becomes us versus them. It's, it's the church against the world. And, 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 and that's what happens when we isolate ourselves, when we insulate ourselves from people that are far from God. That's the first option. The second option, which I think is the one that vast majority of Christians fall into, and that is when they begin to imitate the world. Where our lives look no different than the world around us. We've taken on their patterns, their habits, their, their, their way of living, and, and really our lives look no different than anyone else. 
We began, we began to imitate them. We began to, to blend in with them. We, 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 when we stop spending time with Jesus, we end up looking more and more like people that don't know Jesus. And so we can isolate ourselves or we can imitate the world around us or there's a better option. And I believe this is the heart of Jesus is that you and I would infiltrate the world. That we would go and carry the gospel into the world where people are hurting, where people are dying, where people need the grace and love of Jesus Christ. And we're to carry the gospel and we're to infiltrate that, that area. We're, and here's what happens. When we begin to spend time with people that are far from God, we shift from an us versus them, to get this, to an us for them. What is the complaint that most of the people in the world have? They know what we're against. Their biggest complaint with the church is that they, all they know is what the church is against. What if they discovered because of our love because of our willingness to go, they would discover what we're actually for. And that we are for them. That's what happens when we begin to carry the gospel and proclaim the gospel to people who are far from God. So we see that Jesus, as we move from fans to followers, we, we begin to, to be with him. We begin to proclaim him. But there's a third thing he says, and that is that we, to, we are to live by the power of Jesus. And he says, I've given you authority to cast out demons. What this tells me is that you and I don't make disciples in and of our own strength. We don't follow Jesus in and of our own power, not our own abilities. We need the power of Christ living and dwelling in us and working through us in order to actually live out our faith, period. At the end of Jesus' life, before he ascended into heaven, he said, All authority in heaven on, and on earth has been given to me. And what he's showing us here is that he has delegated, this is awesome, church, he has delegated that authority to you and I. He's given us and delegated his own authority so that you and I can live the Christian life, so that we can proclaim the gospel, so that we can live sent, so that we can can fulfill the purposes and the plans of God. He gives us permission to live by His power and not our own. Isn't that good news? In fact, you see this evident in the early church in Acts 1.8. It says, but you will receive what? Power. Whose power? God's power. His power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But then in Acts 4.33, he says, with great power. Again, God's power. The apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. The fact that they lived by God's power and not their own is the reason that you and I are here today. As the church. Because God empowered these 12 men to start this movement that we're a part of today. And if they had gone and did this in their own power, you and I wouldn't be sitting here. But they didn't. They lived by God's power, and because they lived by God's power, God made them into who He wanted them to be. Remember, these same apostles were a hot mess. God didn't choose them based on their own merit. He didn't choose them because they were worthy, because they had it all together. No, He made them. And then he gave them his power. Look at what it says in verse 16. And he appointed the 12. Again, appointed means to make. And so he, makes, he, he appoints the 12 Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. So he's given them a new name, a new purpose. And then he goes on and he said, And he appointed James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, the sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Listen, these were just ordinary, imperfect men. Not one of these men would have been voted most likely to succeed in their high school yearbook. In fact, think about it. Peter, 
Peter, who he named from pebble, which was Simon, to rock, which was Peter. Think about him. Peter was impulsive. He was emotional. He denied Jesus. He, he put his foot in his mouth constantly. That's who Jesus chose. Look at James and John. He calls them the sons of thunder. That wasn't a compliment. Like now we're like, man, I want to be a thund- sons of thunder. You know, it's like a, two running backs. They're the sons of thunder. You know, it's like, it'd be cool. Like this power. No, it was, a, it was, it was they, he named them that because they were hot-headed. They, were, they had terrible tempers. In fact, at one point they asked Jesus if they could just call down fire and brimstone on a city. Sons of thunder. They fought over who would be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. Right after Jesus had said he was heading to Jerusalem to die. These guys were clueless. Look at these others. You have Andrew. How many of you know anything about Andrew? Do what? He did bring people to Jesus, yes. But after that, we don't hear anything else from him, do we? He didn't write a book in the gospel. We don't know much about him. We don't know much about uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, uh, was, um, was, was actually called James the Lesser. How would you like that to be your nickname? <laughs> oh, there's James the Lesser. Like, the son of thunder, he's the greater. You're the lesser. I mean, the, most of these guys we've never heard of. Matthew, we know about Matthew because Matthew was Levi. He was a tax collector. He was a hated person by the, by the Jewish uh, people. And yet God called him, changed his name from Levi to Matthew. But get this, you also see that we have, um, we have Simon the Zealot. Now, Zealots were religious fanatics. They were radicals. They were wanting to overthrow Rome. Well, guess who they hated? Tax collectors. So Jesus brings Matthew, who was a tax collector, and Simon, this zealot who hates tax collectors, and puts them on the same team. And then there's this one guy. We have Thomas, who doubted. And virtually the rest are unknown. But there's one guy we all know. Judas. Judas Iscariot. And what does Judas do? He betrays him. He betrays him. He betrays Jesus. He, he kisses Jesus and says, this is the one that you're to arrest. Turns his back on Jesus. I mean, Judas, it, it just, here's what Judas shows us. Listen, you can be in church your entire life. You can look the part. You can play the part. You can even be with Jesus and yet not be for Jesus. That's what Judas, he was with him for three years. Judas was a fan of Jesus. But he was never a follower. Jesus was never, his heart was never transformed. He never fully surrendered to Jesus. He walked the part, he looked the part, but in his heart, he he was far from God. Look, church, this should be a wake-up call for all of us to examine our lives and say, listen, am I a follower of Jesus or am I simply a fan? Am I simply going through the motions? Am I, am I just doing it because my parents make me do it? Or am I doing it just because I, my spouse wants me to, to do it? Am I, am I just going through the motions? Or I, do I truly follow Jesus? Do I really want to be with Him? Do I really want to be on mission with Him? Do I really want to be transformed by Him? Now listen, church, if God can take this motley crew, this ragtag group, and use them to turn the world upside down, He can certainly use us. And He will if we'll surrender to Him. And He can if we'll move from being fans to followers. So what does this mean for us? It means that we have to intentionally be with Jesus. 
We have to intentionally be with Jesus. We have to live sent and go and proclaim Jesus. And we must be empowered by Jesus. That's what it means for us. But here's the reality. You are as close to Jesus right now as you want to be. You and I are as close to Jesus right now in this moment as you want to be. See, we have to take responsibility in our relationship with Jesus. We have to take the responsibility to live for Him, to grow in that relationship with Him. You and I cannot grow in our discipleship. We cannot grow as disciples if we're not practicing spiritual disciplines. If we're not spending time with Him in His Word. If we're not spending time praying. We are not going to grow. Why? Because spiritual growth, spiritual maturity is intentional. It's not automatic. That's why people can sit in churches their entire lives and still be infants in Christ. Why? Because they've never moved beyond that initial moment of receiving Jesus. They've never grown as a disciple. And that happens so frequently. So how do we grow? Create a plan to spend time with Him. Get in His Word. Pray every day. I've been reading through the Bible chapter, a chapter or two at, at a time for years, not so I can check off a box. It's so that I can, I can know Christ. So that I can get to know Him more. I can see Him throughout the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament. That I can know Him better. So what's your plan? What is your plan to practice the presence of God, to be in the presence of Jesus every single day? Do you have a plan? Because here's the reality. If you don't have a plan, if you don't have something to aim for, you're going to hit it every time. It's going to be nothing. You have to have a plan. You have to have something that, that, that you are intentionally setting aside to do. But here's what happens. When you spend time in the presence of Jesus, people will notice. In fact, in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says that, that James and John had, had or, uh, um, excuse me, Peter and John were in front of the, the religious leaders. And it says that they perceived them as uneducated, as fishermen, as, as just, you know, blue-collar nobodies. But he says they recognized something about them. And what did they recognize? That they had been with Jesus. See, when you and I spend time with Jesus, people will begin to notice they will begin to recognize it. So that's how we, we, have to, we have to spend time with him. But we also have to grow in our going capacity. We have to be willing to go. So how do we grow in our going capacity? Do something. Do something. Share the gospel with someone. Spend time building a relationship with someone that is far from God. Start small. Listen, is the weather starting to warm up? Begin to walk in your neighborhood. Begin to meet your neighbors. Begin to, to invest in people that are far from God. Get to know a coworker. Do whatever. Find a student that's, that's in your class, a classmate, and just begin to, to spend time with them. Start doing something, and then look for opportunities. We've got a huge one coming up. Easter Sunday. Huge opportunity for us to invite people to join us. And listen, if you have people that are that are that are that are not quite ready to be in a gathering like this, I would rather you invite them to your home, watch online, share the gospel with them than you to show up here on Sunday morning by yourself. That's the reality of what it means to be to live since so we have to look for that because here's the truth, church. We are God's plan for the great commission. And there is no other plan. Jesus didn't appoint the 12 and say, go and make disciples and say, well, if they don't do it, then I'm going to come up with something else. He didn't. That is his plan. You are his plan. We are his plan in carrying the gospel to people who are far from God. And there is no plan B. We are his plan and his only plan. But here's the amazing thing about his plan. Is that God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies those that he calls. He shapes us. He molds us. 
He gives us the power when we spend time with Him, when we live on mission for Him, and when we are empowered by Him. That's how we move from being fans to followers because fans will never fulfill the Great Commission. Fans will never walk with Jesus and do what He's called us to do. Fans won't walk in obedience, but followers will. And so church, let's be a church not full of fans, but full of followers who are spending time with Jesus, who are living on mission with Jesus, and who are empowered by Jesus. Let's pray. And so this morning, I just want to take a, a moment we don't do this very often, but if you're say if you're here this morning and you're like, Pastor, I just want you to pray for me. I feel like I'm living more as a fan than a follower. I just encourage you just to slip your hand up real quick and just say, just pray for me. I'm, I want to be a follower, but I'm more of a fan. And so, Jesus, we come before you, and Lord, we pray that you would help us to move from being fans to followers. Jesus, help us to move from just simply acknowledging you and wanting to be around you to actually truly following you by living in obedience to you. And Lord, I know that there are many people here today and maybe watching online that they haven't spent time with you in a long time haven't paused to read your scriptures or to pray or to do anything like that in a very long time. Lord, I pray that today they would create a plan to be able to spend with you because the fact of the matter is that you desire to spend time with us. You chose us. Not because of our own merit, not because of our own righteousness, but you simply chose us because you chose us, because you love us, because you desire us. And Father, help us to live on mission. To Lord, I pray that right now you would put in each and every person's mind and heart some person that they can invest in, some person that they can invite, some person they can pour into, some person that is far from you that needs to experience your love and your grace. And Lord Jesus, I do pray that as a result of that, we would be empowered by you. That we wouldn't try to live this Christian life in our own power, but through your power. And Father, for any that, that don't know you, that have never given their lives to you, and they're just simply fans, but I pray that you would bring them to the point of repentance and bring them to the point of belief, that they would place their trust and faith in you and you alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.